This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. And me, Tegan Taylor. Tegan, you've got a sound teaser for us. I do. Let's have a listen. Do you know what that is? No, but I am crossing my legs. <laughs> so you should. It is a pair of scissors. And, um, so what's that hear, all about? We're going to hear in a little while why particular sounds are particularly important to some people. Right. So I'm getting a tingling. Maybe that's something to do with it. Ooh. And I'll be talking about detecting one of the hardest to find but deadliest cancers early. Before we get to all that, what's been interesting you this week? Well, we're talking on Valentine's Day, so I thought I might bring you a story to do with heart health. And there was a study from Japan that looked at the link between heart disease and whether you have hobbies and Mm -hmm. that people who had one hobby had a reduced risk of both heart disease and stroke and people with lots of hobbies had an even lower risk, which intrigued me and I'm interested to get your thoughts on it as a doctor, Norman Swan, because the authors were saying, oh, it's mental health and it's relaxation and belongingness. And I wonder whether it's people who have time to do hobbies have maybe have time to do other healthy things as well. I mean, does it include what kind of hobby it is? I mean, the hobby might be skydiving without a parachute. You know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's probably going to give you a heart attack. No, it, I, I no, think no, sporting hobbies were one of them, but you didn't have to be active for it to have the effect. No, no, the so- social support does make a difference. Reductions in chronic stress make a difference to whether or not you get heart disease. So there's lots of things that could be involved in hobbies um, which go beyond the hobby itself. Oh, well, so stamp, I don't... Stamp collecting at home? <laughs> Not sure. So if I'm drawing or gardening or doing a puzzle, I don't need to feel guilty that I'm wasting my time. No, I'm no, doing no, it no, for no. my heart health. You're, you're just keeping yourself alive longer. Anyway, Norman, what's all this got to do with the price of beer? Well, the, that's what I've been interested in over the last few days. So the Prime Minister late last week made a promise to reduce the excise on beer, uh, keg beer. So this is about pubs and beer. Uh, which would translate probably to about 40 cents off the price of a pint and 30 cents off a schooner and um, as an election pledge. They, they say it's temporary, but nonetheless. And it's, it is extraordinary. Um, our, our national alcohol policy is in a bit of a mess. And, and in fact, both political parties really need to take some responsibility for that. For example, thanks to uh, lobbying by the, particularly the South Australian wine industry, we don't have what most other countries, many other countries have, which is volumetric taxation, which means that we tax alcohol, alcoholic drinks according to how much alcohol is in them. And that's meant that, for example, cask wine has been unusually cheap, and that's a real problem for people in disadvantaged communities, particularly Aboriginal communities and others. And there's no question that price is a key... um, Price does make a difference to consumption. So reducing taxation, excise, will in fact increase consumption. And that's why they're doing it. They're saying, oh, we've got to have a revival of the pub industry, and this is a stimulus there. And what we're talking about here is increasing alcohol consumption where we want to actually be decreasing alcohol consumption. And just as a reminder, we're talking about bladder cancer, bowel cancer, breast cancer, domestic violence, injury and depression. And while younger people are not drinking as much in Australia, which is great, over 55-year-olds are still drinking too much. And in fact, they're increasing their alcohol consumption. And that's probably part of the target group here. And, and one, of the pro- one of the reasons that over 55-year-olds have problems is they've got less brain resilience. So if they do get drunk, they are probably speeding the onset of dementia. It's a, it's a real issue. 
Has anyone done modelling on what the decrease in cost translates to in terms of uh, consumption and the like the health effects of that? People have. It varies according to uh, according to community and and and, and 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 how much money you have. So, for example, if you go to the pub once a week and have a beer, it's probably not going to make much difference. If, however, you drink a lot of beer, it could increase your consumption. And if you are short of money, it's going to make a bit of difference. So, it's the most vulnerable in our community will be most sensitive to to this in terms of increasing. So, you can't generally you can generalise with adolescents and smoking. We know, for example, with smoking, if you increase the excise, it goes down by a predictable amount, which is why smoking, why you have regular excise increases in, on, on, on tobacco. Um, but there's job work to be done with alcohol for both parties. Yeah, that's, um, that's serious business. And it all sort of goes into this sense of... Uh, of staying healthy for as long as we can, which is really what our first interview tonight is all about. Yes, this is about, is there a marker, what they call a biomarker for um, ageing? In other words, how fast you're ageing or how slow you're ageing? Can you actually tell that? And then you can do something about it. Now, one of the so-called biomarkers that people have talked about and you and I have talked about, and it's been on the health report several times, is the telomere. This is like the the plastic ends of your bootlaces, your shoelaces, and it, and it protects your chromosomes. So each chromosome's got telomeres at the end of it, and these telomeres shorten every time cells divide. But they also shorten with adversity, smoking and other things as well, which you hear more about here. But just how good is a shortened, the length of your telomere, and that's what we're talking about here, just how good is the length of your telomere at telling whether or not you're going to die prematurely or get, get certain conditions. And the largest ever study has just been published. Dr. Carolyn Schneider was the lead author, and I spoke to her earlier. Thank you so much for having me. So what did you do in the study? We used the vast data set um, of uh, the UK Biobank, which has more than 472,000 patients where they measured um, the telomere length. After this initial examination of the patient and the measurement of the telomere length, the patients were followed up for 12 years. And this makes it um, the largest data set to my knowledge to date. And we used this data set to really look into the prognostic value of the telomere length for overall mortality but also for core-specific mortality. For general mortality, we only found a modest risk increase for 8% um, for each standard deviation telomere shortening. 8% is not so much. For example, the risk if you are diabetic, it's more like 300% risk increase. Or if you are obese, it's a 150% risk increase. So this 8% per telomere shortening, it's statistically significant, but it's just a modest risk increase. But if we look at specific diseases, for example, the risk to die of respiratory diseases, including coronavirus, which we also um, yeah, tested, was up to 40% elevated per each telomere shortening. And what was quite interesting and unexpected from our study was that cancer-related mortality was not associated with telomere shortening because this was something that was often discussed in, in the community if um, yeah, shorter telomeres were associated with cancer development. And our study shows that for overall cancer, there's not an association with shorter telomeres, but also as for general mortality, for specific cancers, there is an association as, for example, lymphoma or leukemia, we found a strong association with telomere shortening. So basically, one of 
the things that our study shows was that organs vary in their susceptibility to telomere shortening. And the second thing that we could show is that for the general mortality, telomere length might not be a good marker. And we do not encourage people at this point to go and get the telomere length measured. Now, people have said, look, shortened telomeres are both genetic and also environmental. So if you smoke, if you're living in poverty and in, in lots of air pollution and so on, your telomere length goes down and that's a mediator for living less healthily and having more chronic conditions. Where are you able to tie this down as to cause and effect, particularly cause and effect in terms of what was causing the shortened telomere? Yeah, that's an interesting question because in the second part of our study, we looked at the association of telomeres and telomere lengths with lots of diseases at once. For example, in our cohort, we had uh, 1,847 different diseases and then look at those associations which are most strongly related to telomere shortening. And what you already mentioned, the strongest hit was smoking. And this is also something that is already known that smoking causes telomeres to shorten. And this is also something that people could do if they want to avoid the shortening of telomeres. But to really dissociate um, cause and effect, we replicated this analysis and we corrected um, for gender, for BMI, age, and also smoking and alcohol intake. And we limited all the diseases only to those diseases that were diagnosed at least two years after the telomeres were measured. So we were at least trying to find out which diseases um, yeah, arose after the measurement of the telomeres. And we could basically replicate the findings of our study that uh, mostly respiratory diseases were associated or were strongest associated with telomere shortening. And then we found um, diseases also of the liver, of um, hematopoietic diseases, and as I already mentioned, some cancers that were associated with telomere shortening. If your findings are right and they're replicated by others, what's the significance? At first, we have to say that one significant finding of our study is that we really discourage people to get their telomere length measured at uh, this point in time. And we still need to find this one um, biomarker that we might get measured in the future to see our general health and to maybe also predict our lifespan. And this is something that was hoped that uh, the telomere length could be. Yeah, this is something that we at this point in time say the telomere, they cannot do do it. And the second thing is um, that we could very nicely show that different organs um, vary in their susceptibility to telomere shortening. For example, the liver, which was one of the organs that we found that is associated uh, with telomere shortening, people had more liver diseases when they had shorter telomeres, that we need uh, more research um, yeah, focusing on the different um, organ systems and not just at uh, telomeres in, in general. But the magic marker to tell you how long you're going to live is still to be discovered. Yes, and this is obviously um, the next uh, thing that we are focusing on. Um, we will still be trying to yeah, look uh, a little bit deeper into telomeres and also how they are associated to nutrition, to um, smoking and alcohol consumption. But also, on the other hand, we are still looking for this magic marker. And some groups are already looking at uh, the epigenome to find um, a marker there for longevity. But maybe also we can use uh, telomere length as a marker in a specific 
specific subgroups. So maybe it might just not be the right marker for everyone, but to predict a specific disease, telomere lengths might be useful. But for this, we need also future studies to dissect this. So is there a way of looking after your telomeres? Actually, there is a way to look after your telomeres, and um, this is actually what I can recommend to all, because we know a lot about lifespan prolonging effects that may also prolong your telomeres. It is not yet shown if you can do something about nutrition or exercise, but what we know is that if you don't smoke and if you don't drink too much alcohol, because these are two factors that can shorten your telomeres, and we will do more research to find the right amount of exercise and maybe to also look into nutrition and telomere lengths. But what we can say now is that maintaining healthy weight is also something that, that your telomeres do not get too short. What I just um, wanted to, to say is um, that even if you got your telomeres measured somehow and they turned out to be short, it's not something like a death sentence because especially in our study, we looked at the people with the 1% shortest telomeres. And of course, we found a strong risk increase for some diseases and also for general mortality. But still, they were among the people with the 1% shortest telomeres and still were healthy. So this is also something that I want to give to the audience that even if your telomeres are short, there is something you can do about and you can just live a healthy lifestyle and this will have more life prolonging effects than anything else you can do for your telomeres. Carolyn, thank you very much for joining us. Sure, thank you so much for having me. It was great talking to you. Dr. Carolyn Schneider is a postdoctoral research fellow in the Department of Genetics and Translational Therapeutics at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. So you get, you get your telomeres tested by just it's a simple, well it's not simple but it's a blood test. I think we were talking last week about retinal scans and whether they can tell us about our biological age. I know that Carolyn said not to get them measured today, but I do wonder what we're going to be able to tell within 10 or 15 years. Yeah, um, well, that's right. But I think that already you can, on a combination of tests, you can actually find out a fair bit about how you're ageing and how you're going. And um, you know, it'll get more accurate as time goes on. But mm. you kind of know for yourself how well you're eating, how much exercise you're getting. And all that sort of stuff. Now, you've got another mystery sound for us. I have several mystery sounds for you, Norman. I want to see how many of them you can identify. Here we go. I mean, I thought it was just like pouring out a cup of tea on a Saturday morning, reading the paper and getting angry and throwing it away. That was really my take on it. What were they? <laughs> we had a ring pull and a fizzy fizzy can and scissors being snipped like we heard at the top of the show. Some beans being poured into a bowl, which maybe was your Saturday morning pouring some mm. cereal into a bowl. Scrunching packaging, hair brushing and uh, shaving can spray. And I do have a health-related reason why I'm playing you these weird I'm sounds. I'm sure you do. So it's all to do with ASMR, Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response, which if you've been on the internet in the last five years, you've probably heard of. There's people who say they get tingly in a good way when they hear certain noises and some people like whispering noises too. Anyway, um, people were seeking them out on places like YouTube and at first it was a bit of an online kind of thing, but there's now a body of evidence that's growing that, yes, it's a real phenomenon that happens and it actually might be useful for people with anxiety. So 
I spoke to a UK, a UK researcher who's just published a paper about this. Her name is Joanna Greer from Northumbria University. It's a hugely popular phenomenon. There are thousands of YouTube videos being created, which are being accessed by thousands and millions of people who are really interested and enjoy ASMR. The people who are experiencing it typically are the people who are seeking the sensation out. Did we know that this existed before YouTube existed? Certainly, if you look through history, it is reported. There is some literature, I can't remember the specific book from the 18th century, actually described, a novel actually described the sensation. Obviously now because of the online era, it's becoming very popular and news is spreading very rapidly. But it doesn't just have to be online. I've heard reports of people who experience this for years when they go to the hairdressers, for example. So the question is, who can experience it? That yet we still don't know exactly why some people experience it and some people don't. But what we've been able to do with our study is begin to get some information about parameters that might characterise individuals who can experience ASMR. Tell me about the link that you found with anxiety. The link we have is that We're trying to understand more about the kind of traits that might characterise somebody who can experience ASMR. And the link we have with anxiety also links with the personality trait of neuroticism. Whilst it might sound a little bit negative, we all have an element of that. And it's characterised by a greater propensity possibly for sort of depression and stress. And that also links with anxiety. So your levels of neuroticism are fairly stable across your life. What we found in our study was that the participants who were able to experience ASMR had greater levels of neuroticism and greater trait anxiety compared to the participants who did not experience ASMR. What you've got to think about is you have your personality characteristics, which are fairly stable, and trait anxiety is something within yourself, your levels of trait anxiety is how you sort of are on a continuum. And there might be fluctuations, but in general, that's part of your personality makeup. You then have state anxiety and state anxiety is how you feel more moment to moment. Before you do something that might cause some kind of anxiety, it's likely that your state anxiety levels will be raised. So what we found for this study was that We have these greater levels of neuroticism and anxiety in individuals who experience ASMR. Their state anxiety was also greater, so their moment-to-moment anxiety was greater. But in this group, their state anxiety was reduced after they watched the ASMR video. We were able to demonstrate, yes, we can understand these traits that might characterise somebody who can experience ASMR, And then we found that this particular group benefited from watching the video. And that might seem fairly sensible. Why wouldn't it be? These individuals seek out ASMR. They enjoy ASMR. What we found was that there were some individuals who'd never heard of ASMR before. But when we asked them after the video where they experienced tingles and they'd never heard of it before or never experienced it, they got the ASMR tingles. So again, it's showing us there's probably more people can experience this than we realise. But where we're linking this possibly with a potential intervention or something that might begin to be considered in general is that obviously what I've talked about are group differences between the ASMR experiences and non-experiences. 
When we actually just looked at the levels of neuroticism and state anxiety in general, irrespective of the group, whether you can experience it or not, that's when we found that actually levels of neuroticism and state anxiety before watching the video also accounted for reduction in state anxiety. We just look at neuroticism in general and state anxiety in general, we could also see that just those levels accounted for this reduction in state anxiety. And this is where we're suggesting that actually you might not need to experience ASMR to potentially get a benefit. It potentially a therapy. Hopefully, it needs loads more research, obviously, but it's great to think that actually we may now have another tool that we could add. A few years ago, it sort of sounded like it wasn't really well-defined. It was more of an internet thing than an academic thing, but it sounds like that's changing. Very much is changing. The academic research that's now being conducted is gaining momentum, and we're absolutely delighted to see that. We do hope that this particular study might be a stepping stone to help future development of interventions. Joe, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for your time. Dr Joanna Greer is a senior lecturer in the psychology department at Northumbria University in Newcastle in the UK. TikTok therapy. <laughs> You're so on the finger on the pulse. Not yeah, this yeah one. I know, I know. I'm on TikTok now, actually. It's quite, it's quite an experience. Um, well, that's interesting. Yeah, and I don't get tingles. Yeah, get, me neither. I do I get a bit of anxiety, like but, you know, we'll see. Very interesting. Let's move on, though, to um, a really important issue, which is that pancreas, pancreas or pancreatic cancer is one of the most... It's not a very common cancer, but it is one of the deadliest cancers. And it's important that we pick it up early, but it's difficult to diagnose early. It sits at the back of your abdomen and there, there are no easy tests to do for it and there's no screening known. Um, a group at the Queensland Institute of Medical Research have got together with guidelines about symptoms that actually might indicate a higher risk of uh, pancreas cancer and are actually asking doctors and others to investigate if they find these symptoms. Um, and on the line is, uh, is Professor Rachel, Rachel Neal, who is Deputy Coordinator of, the po of Population Health at uh, the Queensland Institute of Medical Research. Welcome to the Health Report. Hi, Norman. Pleased to be here. So what are the... I mean, it's a bit like ovarian cancer where there's been a push over the last few years to tell women about the sort of abdominal symptoms they might get that they should talk to their doctor about. What are the symptoms you're looking for here that might indicate the doctor should have a look for pancreas cancer even if indeed they don't find it? Well, I mean, it's a bit like ovarian cancer actually in that the symptoms tend to be very non-specific, and that makes it incredibly difficult for GPs particularly because people who turn up with these symptoms are far more likely to have something benign like irritable bowel syndrome or something like that. So really we're trying to help GPs select those patients for whom pancreatic cancer is more likely. So what we've suggested is actually rather than focusing for the most part on individual symptoms, is looking at combinations of signs, symptoms and risk factors as well. And in a patient who has a combination of things, it'll be those patients that we would recommend should go off and have some imaging of their pancreas. Now, you have three tiers of these things. One of them's where it's kind of obvious it's going to be, it's likely to be pancreas cancer. You get pain in the upper part of your tummy. You might be yellow from jaundice. You might have problems with your poo. You might be losing weight and have nausea. Let's go on to the other ones, which are less specific. What, what's the, what is the constellation of medical history and symptoms that would raise the concern that it's worth investigating. 
So there are things like somebody who's aged over 50 or 40 um, who has a new diagnosis of diabetes. So diabetes is incredibly common and it's not normally an indicator of pancreatic cancer, but it can be. So if you take someone who's got new onset diabetes and they have also been a regular consumer of uh, lots of alcohol or they've been a fairly heavy smoker within the last 10 years, then our recommendation wouldn't be that you would immediately go off and investigate the pancreas, but you would attempt to manage their diabetes for about six weeks. And if you were unable to, then you would consider investigations of the pancreas at that point. We do know that new onset diabetes can be a red flag in some people. So that would be an example um, where you put things together. And you talk about biliary pain, and that's the pain in your upper abdomen that I was talking about earlier, so-called epigastric pain, going through to your yeah, back. The, yes, the, the pain looks slightly different, and experienced GPs are able to distinguish between sort of epigastric, epigastric pain and biliary-type pain, and particularly biliary-type pain gets worse after ingestion of fat or a heavy meal. Um, and that's more likely to be something like gallstones than it is pancreatic cancer. So it's important that GPs are able to distinguish between different types of pain and explore those. And, and there are other non-specific ones like abdominal pain. What are the tests that you do? Because um, this is not like doing a mammogram uh, or an ultrasound of the, of the breast. Um, it's, you know, and ovarian cancer is very similar. I mean, you, there's no easy test for ovarian cancer. In fact, you've got to remove the ovary to do if you really think you've got ovarian cancer. Um, what, what are the tests that can reliably diagnose pancreas cancer? So it's a CT scan of the pancreas is the test that would be recommended. But it's not just a regular CT scan. You can just do a sort of scan of the, of the abdomen. And in some settings that may be appropriate. But if you're really suspicious that someone's got pancreatic cancer, then it's called a pancreas protocol CT. And so it's a, it's a bit different. And it's really important that patients are able to access those specific types of CTs because they're much better at finding small spots in the pancreas as opposed to really big obvious so, so the radiolo- small ones can still be bad. So the radiologist has got to know what they're heading for and eliminate the bowel in front of the pancreas to really get zero in. I thought there was this test called endoscopic ultrasound where the um, gastroenterologist who's been trained in it puts in a, it's like doing a gastroscopy for an ulcer but there's an ultrasound probe and they do an ultrasound of the pancreas from within the stomach. Is that not a valid test? It definitely is a valid test, but it's a much more invasive test. It requires a referral to a specialist. It requires sedation before you can um, do the endoscopic ultrasound. And it's more commonly used in someone who you're a little bit more confident has pancreatic cancer as part of the the staging workup and the the management workup. The first test that you would do if you're um, very suspicious about pancreatic cancer would be a CT scan because that's accessible in in primary uh, care and um, you don't have to be sedated to have a CT scan. Now, one of the debates about ovarian cancer is, is it worth picking up early? Because, um, and some people argue that there's not strong evidence that early detection of ovarian cancer actually makes a difference. You just diagnose, you just know that you've got it for longer. Is there any evidence that early detection of pancreatic cancer changes the outcome? No, there, there's not. And we do need to do a lot more research on that. We're doing some and there is some happening in other parts of the world as well. I guess it 
comes down a lot to um, individuals and what they prefer to some extent. There are some people who prefer just to know about it late, um, get diagnosed very late, and then if they're going to die from it, they don't know about it for too long. However, that's quite shocking for patients and their families. And most people actually feel like they would like longer to, even if they're not going to actually change their, their date that they might pass away, that having that knowledge for a bit longer enables them to put their uh, affairs in order, tick some things off their bucket list. And I think really importantly, it also enables them to take part in medical research studies, clinical trials of new therapies, which may benefit them, but it may also be of benefit to um, other people and speak, in the future. And speaking of that, you've got a pathways study going into just this if people want to uh, join it. Yeah, so we're doing a study where we're actually trying to really get a handle on the, the extent, causes and consequences of diagnostic delay. And we'd really love if anyone who's been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in the last six, or, six months or so got in touch with us to help us with this research. And we'll, and we'll have a link to that on our website. Rachel, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Norman. Pleased to be here. Professor Rachel Neal is Deputy Coordinator of Population Health at the Queensland Institute of Medical Research. This has been The Health Report with me, Norman Swan. And me, Tegan Taylor. See you next week. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.